Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silvercorp, trending as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. The company owns 100% of the Dolly Varden Mines historic silver property. The current favorable price of silver has renewed investor interest in this most historic of the silver mines in northwestern British Columbia in Canada. The property is best considered an advanced exploration stage play with well-understood targets, and I am a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silvercorp. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of Dolly Varden Silvercorp. Dolly Varden Silvercorp has a, a long history in northwestern British Columbia. It's uh, approaching its 100th anniversary for the discovery and first mine opening on the property, which was in production in 1919 to 1921 as the richest silver mine in the British Empire at that day. What's happened between 1921 and 2018 that's new and exciting? I see some very high grades here as per your November 27th news release. Yes, indeed. From 1921 onward, there are lots of changes happened. The mine at Torbrit, one of the four deposits on the Dolly Varden property, was in production as a high-grade silver mine from 1949 to 1959 for 10 years. And the property lay sort of dormant for a while in the 70s and 80s, but it was resurfaced as a, an active exploration camp in uh, the early 2012. And Drilling started again at that time and discovers that there's a lot of high-grade silver yet to be delineated on the property. It is certainly an encouraging project. Your management team, part of the Belcara Group, has had great success in the past. I'm referring to Orco Silver. You were the lead geologist with the company as you are now with Dolly Varden. What is the plan going forward? The plan going forward uh, after the successes of 2017, we as the uh, Belcara Group management team took over Dolly Varden Silver's management in January of 2017, and we ran this last project, which led to several new discoveries. What we plan to do is up the drilling budget and explore on these new discoveries of Torbert North, Torbert East, Mooslam, several deposits that had kilogram values of silver in the drill hole and we would like to have the next drilling program to be more focused on resource delineation and a little bit less on the exploration, the new exploration, although there are many exploration targets yet to be tested. After you further define the resource in the area, will you possibly be a takeout candidate at some point? It's most likely that it will be a takeout candidate. We hope to build the Dolly Varden Silver Project to the stage where the major silver mining companies will find it to be uh, an interesting acquisition for their portfolios. I think it has that sort of potential to move up to a target greater than 100 million ounces of silver. And that's what we're hoping for. Uh, It's a very forward-looking statement. We're hoping to move it up into those levels. We've already found that several of the major silver mining companies have shown interest in the project already. What do you say to them at this stage when they are showing interest and you're not quite ready yet? What we're showing is 
the approach that we've taken. Several of these companies have signed confidentiality agreements, and one company already has a uh, shareholder position. Hecla Mining has 12% ownership in Dolly Varden Silver. Several of these companies already see it as a very promising silver play, and they're looking at the approach that we're taking to advance the project. So many companies see that we have the capability within our team to advance a silver project up to the levels where they want them to be. And at that point, that's when some of the other companies may find it's time to take an even closer look at Dolly Varden Silver. Will this project be potentially acquired by one of the majors during the next five years? Is that foreseeable? I would certainly expect that would be the case. That would not surprise me. Several peak companies have already done site visits where they've sent in their senior uh, geological and engineering teams to evaluate data. When they sign a confidentiality agreement, they also get access to the raw data of the assay files, the drill holes, the logs, all of that sort of information as well. Let's talk about the share structure. Dolly Varden Silver is a company that has been on several groups' radar for a while. There are some significant shareholders that are on the institutional level, and these would include several that are based in the United States, including Ingalls & Snyder in New York, that management group of portfolios, and U.S. Global. They're a very significant investor in a lot of the companies that we're involved in. We certainly appreciate the talent that they bring to us in the financial sector. Management has a smaller percentage than we normally have in companies because we just took over the management contract. But we also participate in any private placements that occur with the new issuance of shares for Dolly Varden. Nevertheless, you only have about 54 million shares fully diluted and a share price of near 80 cents. It certainly seems that there might be quite a bit of opportunity left. I think there's a great deal of opportunity left in this company, certainly. And you've got that right. There aren't a lot of shares issued at this stage. What does the drill program look like for 2018? What I've submitted and my geological team have prepared a budget for 2018 is a two-drill rig program of approximately 25,000 meters of diamond drilling. In 2017, we did over 15,000 meters with a single rig. We would like to bring in the rig for resource delineation in 2018, and we would have the second rig come in about a month later and work on exploration targeting primarily on the latter part of the summer season. And of course, British Columbia is one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. It's a great jurisdiction to work under. It's very clear, all the mineral tenure. We also have agreements and cooperation for employment with the First Nations. We are in the Treaty of the Nishka First Nation, and about a dozen Nishka were working on our project as part of our team in 2017. Ben, once again, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you very much, Ellis, and it's always a pleasure talking with you. I've been speaking with Ben Whiting, Vice President of Exploration for Dolly Varden Silver Corp., trading as DV on the TSX Venture Exchange and DOLLF in the U.S. Once again, I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm a shareholder of Dolly Varden Silver Corp., and the company is a paid sponsor of this program. Find Dolly Varden on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Tyler Dinwoodie, the president of Alabama Graphite Corp, trading in the U.S. as CSPGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG. With an advanced flake graphite project in the state of Alabama, 
Alabama Graphite intends on being a reliable longtime supplier of specialty high purity graphite products. Tyler, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Ellis. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company for our new listeners. Alabama Graphite is a graphite development company focusing on battery-ready graphite. Our flagship property is the Coosa Graphite Project located in Coosa County, Central Alabama, and we are the most advanced graphite project in the contiguous United States. Well, that's really fantastic. Now, uh, graphite is a resource that we definitely, definitely need for the battery chemical, the battery mineral industry. Do we not? Absolutely. However, graphite is largely misunderstood by the institutional retail investment community, but also the analysts. And what I mean by that is is that graphite, like lithium and cobalt, these are critical supply chain materials in the green energy lithium-ion battery space. Graphite is unique as opposed to lithium or cobalt in the sense that it requires very specific specialty processing beyond its primary processing as an industrial mineral. So in order to produce a graphite that would be applicable to, say, lithium-ion batteries, it goes through an extensive series of downstream processes in order to produce that. So I think what I mean by the retail or institutional or research community largely misunderstands graphite, it's this sort of significant misconception that graphite is graphite is graphite. Graphite out of the ground is pretty much what goes into your batteries. and Nothing could be completely far from the truth than that in the sense that graphite is, generally speaking, a primary processed industrial mineral. The graphite that goes into a lithium-ion battery is a specialty process technology material. So it is not as readily available as we would need for the market demand. Precisely, in the sense that there's no shortage of graphite. In fact, the amount of graphite that has been delineated in terms of compliant resources around the world has increased six-fold in the past 10 years. So we've gone from 6 billion tons in situ graphite to last year's 36 billion tons of in situ graphite. So graphite as an industrial mineral is not in short supply whatsoever in terms of identifying resources. However, being able to economically extract that graphite and further process it into battery-ready graphite is entirely another story, and that is in very short supply. And that is what is unique about Alabama graphite, is it not? Precisely, because Alabama graphite does not intend to produce one pound of conventional primary processed graphite. Our sole focus is on producing the specialty battery-ready graphites. However, I think it's important to understand and differentiate Alabama graphite from other aspiring graphite development companies in the space in that we intend to address graphite not just for the secondary or rechargeable lithium-ion battery markets, but also the primary lithium battery market, the non-rechargeable lithium battery as well as the alkaline, your traditional non-rechargeable batteries, and the lead-acid battery space. And an interesting note about lead-acid batteries, the global battery market is valued at about $36 billion per annum. 90% of that $65 billion market is comprised of lead-acid battery manufacturers. So lead-acid really is the dominant battery technology. And of course, lithium-ion is growing, I think, beyond anyone's expectations, even the most bullish expectations. Lithium-ion battery adoption and technologies are seating said forecast but there's significant upside to lead acid batteries there have been some significant changes in the company that we should absolutely talk about and they're very good yes perhaps the most significant changes in the company's history on december 13th of 2017 alabama graphite announced its binding agreement for us-based Westwater resources inc to acquire all of the issued and outstanding shares of alabama graphite in short Westwater resources would be acquiring alabama graphite what does this mean for the current shareholders 
members of Alabama Graphite and anyone that is considering becoming a shareholder now? What it means is that that post-transaction, which is currently scheduled to be completed early Q2 of 2018, is, is that all Alabama Graphite security holders would receive replacement securities, Westwater Resources stock, at a fixed exchange ratio of 0.08 Westwater shares to every one Alabama Graphite share. Well, I have to say, as a shareholder of the company, I find that quite exciting. It really is, in the sense that we've got the additional added profile of being a NASDAQ-listed company. However, it's the economic firepower that Westwater brings to the equation, not to mention its operational and technical expertise, but it's this access to significant capital that is arguably most compelling, because Westwater holds the potential in management and the board of directors' opinion that Westwater can bring to Alabama Graphite the potential to advance in a manner that we otherwise could not. Therefore, we have some new technical expertise. Dr. Gareth Hatch has quite a pedigree and just adds more power to Alabama Graphite. Yes, we're very lucky that independent director, Dr. Gareth Hatch, agreed to become the interim chief executive officer of Alabama Graphite. So we're very lucky and the potential end users that we're engaged with, we've got more than 30 NDAs with prospective end users. Dr. Hatch has had conversations conversations with almost all of them, and things have been going very well. He instills a lot of confidence with our prospective end users, and he understands our technologies very well. He's been with the company since mid-2016, and as early as mid-2015, he's been studying our company through site visits to our projects in Alabama, as well as all of our downstream laboratory partners he's met with, and this was back in late 2015, early 2016. So he's been intimately involved with the company and understands our technologies, our processing, our project very well. So it was sort of a logical fit to have Dr. Hatch come into the company, and we've been very fortunate to have him. Tyler, what are some of the significant aspects of the company that perhaps we haven't covered in this interview and the markets that are really candidates for offtake? Ellis, most graphite development companies focus on anode graphite, which is the specialty graphite that would be used in the manufacturing of the anodes of lithium-ion batteries. And that's obviously an important and significant market, and a market that's growing faster than anyone has anticipated or expected. And that's fantastic. However, there's a significant market to address in terms of lead-acid, and lead-acid battery manufacturers are looking for a purified micronized graphite, or we call PMG, to add as a conductivity and enhancement material. There's also a product that Alabama Graphite has been working on for quite some time known as Delaminated Expanded Graphite or DEXDG and that too is a high value conductivity enhancement product that has applicability not just in lead acid and not just lithium ion batteries but also primary lithium batteries and alkaline battery markets. So it's important to have a diversified product portfolio that isn't just contingent on the adoption by one set segment if you will of battery manufacturing. And that's what's exciting about Alabama Graphite and this Westwater combination is, is that Westwater understands the criticality of continuing to maintain these advanced relationships we have with prospective end users and allow us to continue on that path. So since we've been in this transaction period, if you will, since mid-December, Westwater has been fantastic in the sense that they have been fully supporting our efforts with all of our prospective end users. And this is really important because you want to maintain this momentum that you've established because really it is about exploiting 
everyone's first mover advantage. So Westwater has been incredibly supportive in that and understanding that we are trying to address multiple battery market segments. We've been very fortunate in the sense that we're dealing with some sophisticated, established operational experts that understand the complexities and the nuances of the graphite space. We're very excited that we are still continuing to fire on all fronts with respect to the lithium-ion battery end users, but also the lead-acid battery end users, and we're beginning to penetrate the alkaline battery space and the primary lithium battery space. So it's a very exciting time in the history of Alabama graphite. We do understand, of course, that battery chemistry is changing and will continue to change over time, and this company is positioned to handle all of that. Absolutely. And the important thing to understand is that everybody's talking, it almost seems like every week people are talking about a new battery electrochemistry that will ultimately displace lithium-ion batteries. And I think it's important to know that lithium-ion batteries dominance of the rechargeable battery space is anticipated to be the electrochemical configuration of choice for some time. There are a lot of new fascinating battery technologies or chemistries coming out, but in terms of the demonstrated data and safety, nothing can really touch lithium-ion batteries. The other good news is is that there's room to improve within the lithium-ion battery industry itself in terms of electrochemical performance. And some of these specialty products that Alabama Graphite focuses on, such as this DEXDG conductivity enhancement, a delaminate expanded graphite has huge applicability in helping enhance the overall performance of lithium-ion batteries. It's exciting, but it's also important to know that the lithium-ion battery industry is only expected to grow over the next 10 to 15 years. So we're excited to have a strong product in that space, but also products that can find homes or applicability, if you will, in multiple other batteries. How is the company positioned to raise money from here on out? Westwater has two facilities in place in order to raise capital. They have a $38 million facility with Cantor Fitzgerald and an additional $20 million facility with Chicago-based Aspire, which is quite significant for Alabama Graphite because the key in this industry is not just having a strong technical team and a demonstrated ability to produce a high-performing, consistent-performing product. That's essential, of course, but it means nothing if you don't have the economic firepower to continue to development, to continue to meet and market to your prospective end users, and to build out repeated evaluation samples because anyone can produce produce a couple of hundred grams of an evaluation material to convey to a prospective end user. However, when said end user comes back to you and likes its test results and says to you, now we're ready to graduate to a multi-kilogram batch of said product, whatever that is, whether it's a CSPG for lithium-ion batteries or a DEX-DG for alkaline or lead acid or primary lithium, whatever the case may be, it really sort of separates the men from the boys, if you will, to have the capital to be able to produce these larger quantities of evaluation material. And with Westwater's ability to raise capital, we're confident that we're in much stronger hands moving forward. This is really a a big picture transaction and milestones may potentially be accomplished that Alabama Graphite has not been able to reach before. Let's talk about that. Yes, aside from the ability to raise significant capital and the NASDAQ listing and the fact that Alabama Graphite post-transaction would be a wholly owned subsidiary of Westwater Resources and therefore an American company. Westwater's involvement in Alabama Graphite at all levels, such as engaging with all of our stakeholders, not just our investors, but actually going down to Alabama. CEO Chris Jones has been to Alabama Graphite, I believe on four occasions just since December, meeting, um, conducting his due diligence, but also meeting with representative from the governor's office, representative from the Department of Commerce, including Secretary Greg Canfield. There's also been state senators and other stakeholders from the Coosa County commissioners. And another point that I want 
wanted to touch upon, Ellis, is Westwater's commitment to the state of Alabama. They've been quite candid from the onset about their intentions to build out Alabama graphite, but to focus on the state of Alabama as its home. So what we plan to do post-transaction, and this is really exciting from an Alabama graphite management point of view, Ellis, is, is that we want to commission a pilot plant very shortly after transaction close. So we want to hit the ground running and start piloting all of our products. So we're talking about our anode graphite, our delaminated expanded graphite, and our purified micronized graphite right away. And that's huge because that would represent the first demonstration plant, if you will, on American soil. So we'd actually be producing made-in-America graphite at a significant level. We're talking more than 600 kilograms per year, potentially up to 700 kilograms per year. However, upon successful commissioning of this pilot plant, we would embark on a production facility in the state of Alabama. And we're talking about a tenfold increase. So we're talking upwards of 6,000 to 7,000 tons per annum of battery graphite products made in Coosa County, Alabama. And that's hugely exciting for us. And Westwater is just the partner to have the resources to be able to achieve this. So not only is Alabama Graphite's management and its board in unanimous support of this transaction, but the Alabama state level stakeholders are incredibly excited about this because of the potential that this transaction holds on all fronts. Well, Tyler, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for this tremendous update. I'm very excited as a shareholder, and I'm sure our audience is as well. Thanks for joining us today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Tyler Dinwoody, the president of Alabama Graphite Corporation, trading the U.S. as CSPGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG. Find Alabama Graphite on our website, ellismartreport.com. Green tech, clean tech, biotech, and just tech. Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Robert Mintak, CEO and Director of Standard Lithium, trading in the U.S. as STLHF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SLL. Standard Lithium is a near producer of lithium brine. Even though we've been covering the lithium and battery mineral space for quite some time, we're still at the beginning of a complete revolution, if not full transition, into a world dominated by electric vehicles. You may not have one now, but most likely you will someday. Right now, there's a mandate by major automakers to convert completely to electric vehicles in very short order, even though the supply for these battery-powered vehicles with regard to lithium is just not here yet. We found a solution for some of that supply right here in California, and it's nearly ready for offtake or market. We drove up today from Los Angeles to visit with Mr. Mintak at Standard Lithium's Bristol Dry Lake Project in San Bernardino County, California. And let me tell you, I've traveled to many mining projects globally, and this is by far the easiest to get to from either Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Very smooth conditions. Active freight railroad tracks pass right through the area, and site roads are very good. I'd call it Infrastructure Plus, right in the heart of California. The Bristol Dry Lake Playa is a flat salt dry lake that occupies approximately 155 square kilometers in a 2,000 square kilometer arid drainage basin. Standard Lithium's partnership with two permitted brine operators provides it with immediate access to raw brine. The project covers 35,000 acres and covers the majority of the playa and overlies a basin that is greater than 1,000 meters deep. Standard's position in this nationally important resource is highly strategic, and personally, I've never seen an operation quite like it. Very exciting. What are we looking at here, Robert? Well, Alice, welcome to Bristol Dry Lake Lithium Brine Project in the Mojave Desert in California. 35,000 acres of brine leases, 
that we have under option agreement with two permitted brine operators. The area has been producing industrial minerals from the near surface brines in Bristol Dry Lake for almost 100 years. How come I wasn't aware of this? Most people weren't aware that there was lithium in the brine in Bristol Dry Lake. The USGS had drilled here in the 70s and 80s and it was in their publications that the, they intersected brine from virtually the surface to as deep as they drilled, 500 feet. There was brine intersections pretty much the whole way, but it didn't fit a conventional lithium brine development model that most companies look at using massive evaporation ponds. The chemistry and the permitting challenges, even though there's currently producing mines here, a traditional mindset would look at this and say, no, it wouldn't work. But the state of the lithium extraction processing is now opened this opportunity and we seized it because we looked at it and said, where else can you work with an asset where you know you're gonna have access to brine immediately? We successfully negotiated agreements with the two permitted operators here to begin work right away. And we knew there was lithium in the uh, brine because we could come in the day one we signed an agreement and we took thousands of liters of brine to sample and begin processing. Essentially, you're in production. Do I have that right? I wouldn't say production, but we have a fast track to get the resource developed. Right now, we've got five drill holes being put in the ground here. And we've taken tens of thousands of liters of brine, taken it to our three different campuses in North America to begin lab-scale work to unlock the lithium from the brine so that we can put a flow sheet together towards pointing to a fast track to production. You've been in the mining business for quite some time in the lithium sector for a while. Are you surprised by what you've discovered? Not surprised by what we discovered, but I was pleasantly surprised that we were able to put the deal together quite quickly, that both the permitted operators in Bristol Lake were open to working with us. National Chloride, we signed a deal with them in the spring of 2017, and then with Tetra Technologies, New York Stock Exchange listed chemical supply company. We signed a deal with both of them that gives us the option to acquire the rights to the lithium development in Bristol Dry Lake. And we put the deals together quite quickly, which allowed us to really point to our investors to show that, yes, there is a path to production here. And production cost as compared to other juniors in the sector right now, uh, what are we looking at? I can't really put OPEX and CAPEX numbers on it, but the things that we looked at on this project were to unlock the asset using a modern process, what do we need? We needed to know that we had a brine with lithium in the chemistry. We had access to the brine so we could prove that right away. We needed to know that we would have a fairly straightforward permitting regime. It's an industrial mining area of California. Almost 100 years of mining has gone on here. And there's two permitted operators, so we could point to a path to show that the permitting would be without a lot of hurdles. We also needed to know the other thing you need on a modern process for lithium extraction is you need to have access to cheap reagents, probably some of the cheapest chemical reagents in the world because we're in the heartland of the United States. If you look around here, you'll see there's a paved highway to the front door. There's water, there's power, there's rail at the site. You don't have any better infrastructure anywhere in the world. So we could look at those things and say this is a great stage to launch a modern lithium brine project. I traveled up from Los Angeles, took me about three and a half hours on paved roads all the way. And from all the projects I've visited all over the world, this has been the easiest to get to, the less nauseating. As you know, a lot of projects are off-road and they're very difficult to get to. And we passed the railroad tracks where you're going to be offloading. It's just right here. Yeah, no, there's the Burlington Northern is right. It's actually, there's a siding on the project. Tetra loads chemicals right from the project location we're at here and ships it across North America. So we can look at all of those things and we can say, this is an opportunity for California to participate in the clean energy, renewables, and the electric vehicle economy. California is the epicenter of the green movement. Tesla was built here. Solar and wind are key in California, but 
there hasn't been an opportunity to have a raw material supply as part of that, and we're hoping to demonstrate that. What kind of contact do you have with the local and state government here in California? We've just started making an introduction of what we're trying to do with Standard Lithium in California. We've made some face-to-face meetings in Sacramento, and we had an extremely receptive audience. Unlike the challenges you would think of building a mining project or a classical mining project in a state like California, Working in an area that has been producing industrial minerals for close to 100 years, as I said, and also working to build a product that will go into lithium batteries to be part of the green supply chain. It gives a halo to the project where it aligns with the state's interest. What kind of mine life are we looking at potentially? Does anybody really know? Well, we're working on those numbers now. So we're working to produce a national instrument 43101 during the second quarter of 2018. We've got exploration crews right now drilling wells, getting that data, all the data points necessary for that. And we've been able to act quickly because working with both the permitted operators allowed us a lot of opportunity to work somewhat under their umbrella. And we're doing the work to unlock the flow sheet on the lithium processing. So we'll be looking at that 43101 coming out, but we can look at what's gone on historically here and say, you know, they've been really just scratched the surface on their resource that they have here. They've been mining for, as I said, close to a hundred years. And what we're looking at is really magnifying the opportunity here from the work that Tetra and National Chloride have done and really building a model that will show that this will be a world-class and a a world-scale project. And you have a sizable potential here in California, but there's Arkansas to discuss. Yeah, we just recently announced uh, at the start of 2018 that we signed a deal with Tetra Technologies. Again, we've got the deal with them in California, but also on what really may be one of the most exciting lithium projects in the world and the smackover in southern Arkansas for 33,000 acres of brine leases there. And we also just announced a couple of weeks ago that we signed an LOI with an existing chemical processing company in southern Arkansas to build a pilot plant adjacent to an existing permitted facility. So all those things align with our business model where we were looking to eliminate project risk in that working with opportunities to work with existing producers so we could fall under their permits, have access to brine, working in areas where we know the brine, we'd be able to access it to begin process work immediately. Those things all aligned. What we're doing in California, we're doing in Arkansas as well. And we're going to have some significant news developments coming out of there. The 33,000 acres that we picked up in Arkansas had over 256 wells drilled on it already. We have access to all the drill log. We have access to over 200 miles of 2D seismic on that. So we're going to be very quickly be able to build a hydrogeological model and put out a resource without having to spend a lot because the work's been done already. The value of being a journalist in the resource sector, in addition to being an investor, is that you can travel to the site and take a look for yourself to evaluate how developed a project is, essentially determining if a story is mostly promotional or in fact real with a producing mine coming in the near future. And our crew saw just that. So we're doing real work. We're not just promoting like a lot of junior companies are. Get ground, run a promotion, then try and get some more ground and never do any work. We've been active since day one because we were able to work with National Chloride and work under some of their mining permits. As soon as we signed the agreement, we got Brian to start working with, but we also got a geophysics crew on the ground, ran a gravity survey and a EM survey within the first three months, and then we started drilling in October. We've been drilling ever since. I've been speaking with Robert Mintek, CEO and Director of Standard Lithium, trading in the U.S. as STLHF 
and on the TSX Venture Exchange's SLL. Learn more about Standard Lithium by going to their website, standardlithium.com. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Join me now for a conversation with Dale Brentlip, geologist, speaking on behalf of Orex Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as REX and the U.S. as ORMNF. Orex Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive portfolio of large gold, silver, and copper exploration projects on renowned mineral trends in Mexico, including the Caneto San Luis del Cordero and Sandra Escobar projects, as well as in Canada with the Jumping Josephine Gold Project. Each project has impressive merits of its own. Packaged together, the chance of Oryx making the next big resource discovery increases dramatically. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. Mr. Britliff joins me today in the company's offices in Vancouver, Canada. Dale, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, very nice to be here. Thanks. Now, if you don't mind, tell us about the company. Oryx Minerals has been around for a few years now. We've been very active in Durango and more recently property in Sinaloa as well. Now we're back to Durango with three project focus and we're very excited to be in this prolific silver area, Mexico. This is a really nice jurisdiction actually and a very prolific area. What's your most exciting point that you can say about project in general? Well, many people will be aware of the Sandra Escobar project that we had a lot of success in uh, 2016. We had a bit of a stumbling block there when we came up against some challenging metallurgy. That notwithstanding, the project itself is very exciting. There's a very exciting mineral trend on it. And uh, just recently, we've announced a a three-way deal with Pan American Silver, by which we have a three-way JV that we are going to invigorate that project. We believe that we have something of an analogous system to La Pitaria, which is located about 40 k's to the east of us. What we were drilling on the Bolero deposit was a low temperature, low energy, distal uh, manifestation of a larger system. Pan American Silver seemed to agree with us and Canisil are along for the ride as well. We're going to form a three-way JV in which we form a technical committee. Pan American is going to be funding us for the first year or two and we are going to go searching for the rest of the mineralized system at Sandra Escobar. And you said Fresneo is involved as well, correct? Fresneo is involved in the Coneto project, which is another Durango project of Oryx. It is a 4555 JV with Fresneo holding the majority share. They earned in over a period of three years. They spent over $6 million in exploration there. We announced some results last year, but at the moment, we're still planning up the next phase of work. And tell us about the management team, if you don't mind. Oryx Minerals is one of the Bell Cara Group companies. We share much of the senior management with some of the other companies in the group. Ben Whiting, many people will know him. He's a very accomplished geologist, especially experienced in Mexico, but all over the world. Art Fries is a director of Oryx, as he is with the other companies as well. Again, he's a very accomplished geologist with more than 40 years experience. Uh, Myself, I've been around in the exploration industry in Australia and in Canada since 1997. And uh, we also have another senior geologist, Rob Van Egmont, who is now uh, the senior geologist for Dolly Varden Silver, which is another of the Belcara Group companies. And of course, this group has had a lot of success in the past, specifically with Orco Silver. Yes, the uh, La Preciosa project is a great story. 
was one that we are trying to emulate again with our other companies here. They took a, an early stage project, a silver project in Durango in 2005 and started to drill. One of the key discoveries there was that not only were there steep, steep dipping uh, silver bearing veins, there was also a very large thick vein that was a low angle that held a lot of silver. They ended up selling the company to Core Mining in 2013. That was a very, very successful transaction. And it's one that many of our shareholders experienced that. They lived through that and they want to see us do it again. Well, Dale, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Dale Brentliff of Orex Minerals, trading as REX on the TSX Venture Exchange and ORMNF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corp is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital raising ability. Today we join Mr. Anderson from our studios in Vancouver, British Columbia. John, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for having us again. What can you tell us about what's happening with Triumph in the Yukon? Well, we had a successful 2017 year. It was a project, your listeners may remember, it was a, a project that was put together by a prospector and his wife years ago. And we found three significant deposits, 43101 deposits. They had a 2 million ounce gold deposit, another copper gold deposit that's another million ounces of gold, 6 million ounces of gold equivalent. They're low grade, we realized that, but it was something that we realized when we took it over two years ago, it was an ultimate call on gold and copper prices. So at $1,200 gold, it didn't make a lot of sense, but his goal was going to go through $1,500, $1,600. This company would be a lot more valuable and the asset obviously would be worth, we think, in the hundreds of millions. Well, what I find interesting, not only about what you just said, is the fact that some of the majors, four or five of them, have acquired properties and one has uh, actually acquired a junior over there. I had a conversation with Brent Bergeron with Gold Corp just a few years ago, two years ago, as a matter of fact, and they're quite interested in that area. I know that your property is sort of in the way of Gold Corp's uh, ambitions. That was the game changer. So 2017, was actually a remarkable change for this company. I just said earlier that we position this as the ultimate call on gold, but just up the road that still hasn't been built from where we are, Gold Corp purchased Kamenak for $520 million in late 2016. And here we are, a little $20 million company with a resource that was somewhat similar to them, but not as, as de-risk with the uh, engineering studies. But to allude to the point that are we in the way of that? We are right along a geological trend, the Big Creek Fault, but we have all the infrastructure structure that we need to deploy a mine on one day. We've got a road, a government-maintained road access from the Klondike Highway to our property, right through our property, and our actually our boundary ends right at the end of that road. And essentially, no matter what happens with any of the majors, that's your plan, isn't it, to build a mine? Right now, at today's commodity price, the, the project wouldn't make sense. But it, again, as, as we get through $1,400 and $1,500, this will be a mammoth mine. And, and that's the way we're going to drive forward. Tell us about the shareholder base. It's pretty solid from what I understand. And I'm a shareholder, by the way. I should disclose that. 
Great. Thank you. Yes, we have fantastic shareholders. And, and when I said 2017 was a, a game-changing year for the company, and instead of just being a call on gold, we got act. Part of that was Gold Corp came to us last March and invested $6.5 million for 20% of the company. So it's not just an area play. They see our technical team. They see our resources. They also see the exploration potential. So we have Gold Corp in for 20%. We got Palisades Capital. They've been there for two and a half years and continue to buy. They've got 17%. Got Gold 2000 out of Zurich and some other smaller funds that have three, four percent position. So realistically, we've got about 60 to 70 percent in institutional long hands. And then ourselves management, we have about 10 percent. You mentioned that roads hadn't necessarily been built yet in the area, but I know that the Canadian government, the federal government here, gifted the province, if you will, the territory with a significant amount of money to improve the infrastructure there. Yes. Just September of last year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came up and, and announced a $525 million infrastructure program for the Yukon, which was mainly road building. A lot of that is aimed through our area and areas of the north. But one thing that separates area and the infrastructure is we've got that road now. The first phase of that deployment is upgrading our road. The 30-kilometer road that goes right through our property as well as the 40-kilometer road that connects us to the Klondike Highway. So that's phase one. The next phase would be really continuing on from our property and building a brand new road up to where Western Copper and Gold Corp is. What are we going to see in 2018 specifically with regard to Triumph? We are going to see an extension of our exploration program. So rather than try to do engineering studies, we know we've got those three deposits. Last year, we did a a modest program. We did 13,000 meters. It was very cost effective, only spent $3 million. But we came up with four different discoveries, mainly confirmation of a, a very large porphyry system that's three kilometers long underneath and surrounding the, the current geological resource in one area of the property. So we're going to explore that porphyry more. We're also going to go to the, some of the higher grade areas of the property because the property really is endowed with a lot of scarns epithermal and plaster operation and a polymetallic deposit called the tinted deposit. So we want to go and test those high grade theories that would actually add to the grade and the size of the deposits and resources that we have. Let's talk about your team. We've got a a very lean team right now. I know a lot of people like big management teams and big names. We have a very lean team. It's really led exploration wise by uh, Tony Bereshi. He's a 15 year PhD geologist. He's the one who came up with these ideas. We looked at hiring him independently to give us a a view of the property a, a year ago, came back so excited and came up with five ideas that we tested and we hit on four of them. And then Paul Reynolds, who is our president, he's done a fantastic job with community relations and really doing everything right. In fact, we have press release or bragged about, but we got a reclamation award, the Robert Lucky Award up in the Yukon for the great work we did. We received the Robert Lucky Award, which we didn't even know we were going to get. And that was for the reclamation work we did for uh, previous work on the property and how respectful we were for the environment. So we're doing everything right on the board. We have a complement of Gregory Sparks, who just joined us as a mining engineer, and Joe Campbell, who is the CEO of Terex. He understands this deposit really well working on in the past and very excited. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more people and others outside of just myself and Tony and Paul. Tell us about the structure of the company. Right now, we have 62 million shares outstanding. Again, 60% of it is held within uh, six, seven people or groups, including Gold Corp. We do have some warrants and options that would bring in another $6 million. Average strike of those is around 18 cents. We're trying to maintain our dilution down to a, a very minimal amount. And John, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you about the company and why? 
On that, I would say I'm a 12. And I'll be honest with you, I'm very bullish on the commodity. I'm very bullish on where gold's going. I think we've come through a really tough six years. You're starting to see other stocks react on discoveries. But we have really the ingredients for something that is more than just the 6 million ounces we have. We're one of the cheapest valued companies for the resource we have. We're in a geopolitical safe area. And we're in an area where the majors are starting to really wake up. We've got Gold Corp that has invested in our company and, and paid $520 million up the street. You've got Barrick who's showing up. You've got Anna Fagasto that's been sniffing around. You've got Newmont that took an equity position. And Coeur d'Alene Mines that's invested into a company that's about four kilometers away from us. Well, John, it's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thank you very much for having us. And I look forward to giving you an update in another couple months. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Stay tuned. There's more to come in just a moment. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Steve Cope is the CEO and Director of Silver Viper Minerals. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is VIPR. Silver Viper Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an exciting silver, gold, and base metal exploration project in Mexico, the Clemente Project. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. The Clemente Project is located near the city of Caborca in the state of Sonora, Mexico. It's part of the Sonora Mojave Megashear, a 700-kilometer-long trend defined by medium to large orogenic gold and silver deposits. I joined Mr. Cope at the company's offices in Vancouver, British Columbia. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ellis. Thank you. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. It looks very exciting to me. Well, Silver Viper is a company that went public in September. We did an IPO at 25 cents. We initially listed with the Clemente project, but we just added a, a brand new project, the La Virginia project, which is on the eastern side of Sonora in Mexico. It was a project that was in the Mindfinders profile and got lost in the transaction between Mindfinders and Pan American. And now we're excited to, that we've kind of consolidated the land there and are going to get back to exploring it. You have some wonderful neighbors in the area. Sonora State itself is a, a very great jurisdiction in Mexico and minerally very prolific. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Sonora, as far as the states in Mexico that have a large history of mining, I would put it number one <laughs> in Mexico, probably side by side with Durango, but we've got fantastic neighbors. In the case of the La Virginia project, it was supposed to be the lookalike for the Dolores mine that Pan American bought off of Mine Finders, and that's 75 kilometers south of that deposit. So give us a picture, if you don't mind, of what the next 12 months could look like for Silver Viper. Uh, the next 12 months are going to be very busy. We're going to be running a very aggressive program at the Laver Virginia project. We'll initially target a 5,000 meter phase one, but I would expect that to grow, be much larger based on success by the end of the year. And of course, this is a successful management team. You've had some uh, glory in the past and, and we hope as potential shareholders and shareholders to, to see that 
again. Absolutely. I mean, this is the fourth company now within the Belcara Group. It's the same team that sold Orco Silver to Core Mining for $375 million in 2012. Now, this is our newest one, but we've also got Dolly Varden Silver, Orex Minerals, and Barcelli Minerals within our group. We've got an excellent group of geologists within our corporation that I would put up against any other junior out there. Lots of experience. And this is the next story. Who are some of your major investors and shareholders in this company? We've been very fortunate with the past success of the group to keep some of our large institutional holders that followed us from story to story. In the case of this one, we've got Ingalls and Schneider again, as well as U.S. Global would be the primary two shareholders that have participated already to date. So is the plan of the company basically to build up the resource, define it over the next 12 months, two years perhaps, and then offers will be on the table? I'm saying that, not you. Is that what potentially could happen? I mean, that's certainly always the hope for our group. Our business model has always been to take an asset that's either never had a drill hole in it or something that we believe further drilling will add a lot of value to it. And we only target projects that we think the major miners would be interested in. So if two years from now, or maybe even who knows, it could happen sooner, uh, we'd be very excited to have grown the value of the La Virginia project and have vended that off to a major. How are you capitalized right now to take care of all that you need to do? Currently have four and a half million in the bank. That certainly funds a phase one or phase two program, but we could possibly be looking at doing a financing if we decide to grow that program to be much larger. And tell us about your share structure. Currently have 42 million shares outstanding. No options and no warrants have been issued yet. It's very tightly say it's brand new. So we're excited to get going and, and we've got the share structure to allow us to create a lot of shareholder value. And what are you trading at right now? It is late January 2018. Doesn't trade a lot right now, but I believe our last trade was at 17 and a half. And tell us about your management team, if you don't mind. I'm the president and CEO. We've got Gary Cope as the chairman of the board. Dale Britliff is taking the role as VP of Exploration in this company. And then we've got Carla as our CFO. Well, Steve, I'm looking forward to continuing news as it develops in the near future. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program here in Vancouver. It was a pleasure, Alice. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Steve Cope, CEO and Director of Silver Viper Minerals. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is VIPR. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all of our sponsors on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange is BDG. Black Dragon Gold owns 100% of the Salave Gold Project in the Asturias region of Spain through its wholly owned subsidiary EMC. Salave is a technically robust project situated in a highly prospective region and recognized as one of the largest underdeveloped gold projects in Europe. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Very pleased to be here as always. What is happening with the Salave Project in northern Spain? Well, look, as I uh, said to you last time we spoke, we were getting ready to do a drill program. I'm very pleased to say that on the 23rd of January, we started drilling on two sites. We've just finished our first hole. We should have the second hole complete in a day or two. And then we're going to continue to do another four holes. You know, without having the benefit of seeing 
the actual uh, chemical assay results. What we can say, just by visually inspecting the drill core, is that we've intercepted mineralization pretty much exactly where we were hoping to. So what does that mean going forward? Well, this is the interesting thing. This drilling that we're doing at the moment, as I said previously, is not really about a massive expansion of the number of ounces of gold that we've got in the deposit. This drilling is really designed to focus on geometry, geometry of the ore body and understanding where it goes at depth. You know, what we know to date about the Salave deposit through the very extensive drilling that's been done is that this deposit is basically being fed by a series of hydrothermal conduits where solutions have sort of come up from deep in the Earth's crust and made contact with these sulfides and then disseminated across a series of lenses. But in the northwest of the deposit, there was an anomaly to that theory. And we could see by looking at the deposit in a 3D model that this structure here was not vertical, it was actually subvertical. This drilling campaign will help us understand whether this deposit is actually really open to the northwest end at depth, in which case we think that a further, more extensive exploration program could potentially add quite a few ounces. But the most important thing for us in terms of what we discover here is that the mining approach approach to this deposit has always been, well, go underground and start mining at around 100, 110 metres and then work your way down. But what we're seeing down at around 250 to 300 metres is the grades are coming up quite substantially. Some of the historical drilling in the area that we are working at the moment intercepted very high grade intercepts. We're talking sort of 20, 22 meters at around 40 grams a ton. And so our approach, you know, subject to the results of this program, will mean that we'll probably start mining at around the 300 to 350 meter below surface level. Now that to most people would sound, well, you're going to be going deeper and therefore it's going to be more expensive. Not necessarily. If you go deeper and you're mining higher grade, it presents a number of advantages advantages, particularly on a deposit like Salave, where there is an opportunity to substantially minimize the amount of surfacing, which means that we mine an area of, of the deposit, and then we immediately take that waste rock, which is stored underground, amend it so that it becomes less porous, and basically put it back in the mined out area. Now, that substantially reduces the size of any tailings infrastructure that you would need at surface. And obviously for the local community, that's a massive positive. And that would mean that our surface infrastructure is substantially lower, would potentially reduce our costs and enable us to accelerate the permitting of the project. So we're quite excited by what we're seeing today. I'm really looking forward to seeing these drill hole results and seeing what they come in at in terms of grade and the impact on that on the geometry of the ore body. But today I'm pretty encouraged by what we're seeing. You're doing things that the Spaniards and the Romans could not have done hundreds of years ago, or even the locals about 40 years ago, with technology that was just not available. Then you're finding grades that perhaps they never found, or they did at surface, but... Yeah, well, the Romans didn't have the metallurgical technology to extract gold from sulfide deposits. So the Romans essentially mined the oxide. They essentially broke up the rock and panned it like you would in a river. What we've got is a far more disseminated gold mineralization in pyrites, which requires uh, a bit of a chemistry set to recover, but that's consistent with 90% of gold projects that are in production today. So our approach is very different. And obviously the Romans mine this open pit. Well, we're going to go underground. And the reason we're going underground is the grade is much better underground. And the incremental cost of having an underground mine versus an open pit mine will be paid off by the fact that you're recovering 
less tons with more gold in them. We've looked at this deposit in a number of ways. We think that uh, underground is the right way to go. And as I said, I think we can get most of our infrastructure underground as well, which will not only reduce costs, but it'll have a much lower environmental impact in the local environment and the local community. What's different about underground mining with the technology we have today than let's say it was 20 years ago? Look, there's not a, a significant difference in that but what we have now is the ability to quickly extract rock, have it tested, so we know the boundaries of our ore body. What that means is we have less dilution, so we're bringing up less waste rock relative to the total amount of, of ore that we're moving. And obviously that increases the amount of grade that we're putting through our plant and minimises the cost of extraction of non-economic ore. Is this similar to some of the very deep gold mines in South Africa and similar techniques with regard to underground mining? No, it's different. In South Africa, in the Vale Reefs, for example, those gold deposits are sometimes one and a half or two kilometers underground. So they access those mines through a very expensive shaft and they have multiple shafts that move people and ore up and down into the mine. What we're proposing is a decline. So we essentially construct an underground road that's about five meters by five meters. And that underground road dips at around 10 to 15 degrees and allows us to systematically move into different areas of the deposit and more selectively mine them. So we have less waste and more payable ore that we bring back into our flotation circuit. How are you capitalized moving forward to undergo this task? We believe there's a strong argument for doing further exploration underground. We'll make this decision over the next few months, but indicatively we're considering constructing an underground exploration decline, which will facilitate us to do more drilling without surface disturbance but also at lower cost. That underground decline ultimately would be the operating decline for the mines. What we're doing is advancing spend but not spending more than we need to. We'll have the opportunity to get underground and do a lot more exploration from there. And as I said, we'll make those decisions once we've rebound the resource in Q2. And the plan is to produce, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Nusalabe is one of the highest grade and largest undeveloped gold mines in Europe. We are absolutely planning to produce. Some of the members of my audience have contacted me and they mentioned Black Dragon and I mentioned it of course in my circles and it's still an unknown. In fact Spain's kind of an unknown in our sector. Uh, not for you of course and perhaps not for me and perhaps not for the shareholders that you currently have but why is this such an unknown story right now? Oh look I think there's been little activity uh, at Salave in the last four years but Spain has a very active mining sector. There is copper mines, nickel mines, other base metal mines. There is a gold mine called Ovale, which is moving about two and a half thousand tons a day from underground, only about 60 kilometers from where we are at Salave. I think the project has never really had a, a management team dedicated to putting it into production. There's been lots of exploration and through the cycles, so the funding available to it has gone up and down. I think the difference with Black Dragon, since we've taken the project over, is we've got a very, very strong and supportive shareholder base who are willing to allow us to continue to push toward bringing this project back into production because they fundamentally know that at those grades, 
and at that depth and the approach that we want to take in terms of the extraction of the ore body, it's going to be a very economic mine. And I always thought that the company was undervalued, and that's just me speculating and talking. And I think it still potentially is, even though the market has uh, increased uh, significantly in the last few weeks, it's still potentially a very nice value if you're considering uh, investing in the company. Well, I think when a company is stagnant for a number of years, investors lose interest. So the share price is definitely undervalued for what it's got, you know, a million ounces at just under five grams a ton. If we look at comparable companies, it should have an enterprise value of in the region of 70 to $80 million, but it's got an enterprise value closer to 15. The onus there is on management, on me, to make sure that we're telling people what we've got, telling people what we're going to do, and more importantly, delivering on what we say we're going to do. So we came out in July after we took over Black Dragon and we said that we're going to do exploration. We're going to get a drill permit and we're going to drill out this Northwest extension. Well, we're doing that. You know, there were people who said to us, well, you know, it's going to take you a long time to get all the permits to drill. Well, it didn't. We had them in place and we've used them. So the project will pick up in value. And over the last four weeks since we've really been actively out telling the story, talking to brokers, talking to funds about what we've got at Salave and what Black Dragon is, the amount of interest is really picking up. And you can see that in our volumes and you can see that in our share price, which has basically almost doubled since the beginning of the year. But in saying that, we're still undervalued and we still believe there's plenty of growth to be had in Black Dragon equity. And if you look at what we're doing this year, obviously we've got some drill hole results coming out probably in mid-March and some more in April. We'll be putting a new mineral resource estimate on the project that we think will be a, a very positive development in Q2 this year. We hope to be doing another preliminary economic analysis to a 43-101 standard in Q3. And then we'll obviously be making our applications for any development work moving forward. So I think there's a lot happening at Black Dragon. And as we continue to work on that, and as we continue to deliver results and inform the stock exchange of those and inform our investor base and those that are looking at the stock, we'll continue to see that share price tick up and the volumes tick up. Well, Paul, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another update as soon as you have one available. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis. I look forward to talking to you again soon. I've been speaking with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BDG. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'd like to take this time to thank you for joining us today on the program. Just to be clear, companies featured on the Ellis Martin Report have paid us for the opportunity to reach an audience of potential investors, perhaps people such as yourself. Having said that, we never make any investment recommendations. We cannot do that. We are not allowed to. That decision is entirely up to you and only after you've done an appropriate amount of research or homework, if you will. If you can't afford to risk, then please do not do so. These concerns are highly speculative. With great risk, there can be great reward, or conversely, you can lose a portion of your investment. The companies showcased on this program have a fiduciary duty to increase their shareholder base. That's why they are here, to get the word out. The Yellow Smart Report is heard on the VoiceAmerica.com business channel, downloadable on iTunes, TuneIn Radio app, Stitcher, YouTube, and on this radio station. If you have any questions about our program, please do not hesitate to contact me by email at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. If you are affiliated with a public company seeking additional exposure on our network, 
Again, contact us and make us aware of your story. We'll let you know if we think we can be of assistance to you and your shareholders. For more information on our company sponsors, again, visit our website and click on the company logos through to our client websites. Go to ellismartreport.com. That's ellismartreport.com. Thank you. I appreciate your listening today. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.